Hello, funny people. Thanks for joining me here today on Four Cents a Podcast. We're going to have some fun because I've got something to moan about. Stay tuned. Hello, funny people, and welcome back once again to Four Cents a Podcast. I am your host, Ian Martinez-Kassmeyer, and thank you for joining me uh, again for this uh, mini-series on O. Henry holiday season. We're on part four now. Uh, Another story is coming up, and another part, another section, I should say, in the story of O. Henry's very interesting and very unusual life. So... Let's not waste any time. Let's just get the ball rolling and go. So, when last we left our hapless hero, William Sidney Porter, better known to the reading public as O'Henry, he had just been fired or dismissed, discharged, laid off, let go, thrown out, gotten rid of, ousted, disposed of, kicked out, booted out of. In other words, he just lost his job at the first national bank in Texas. Uh, Again, the reason why he had been fired in the first place was because he had been suspected by the bank managers of embezzling funds. Now, we know two things about O'Henry. We know that he was eventually convicted and uh, spent time in jail for this particular crime. And we know that long before he got this job, uh, as a social butterfly of the highest order, he loved living the high life. And unfortunately, with the high life comes pretty grand expenses. So there's reason to believe that he may indeed have actually committed the crime, but we will never know whether he actually did, or whether it was just down to sloppy bookkeeping that he eventually was fired. But whatever the reason, whatever the truth is, and again, we will never know what that, whether, whether or not this is the case, O'Henry uh, was fired, and he had to go find another job. And keep in mind also that by this time he was both supporting a wife, his beloved Athol, his first wife, and a young daughter, Margaret. So, like any responsible male of the period, he went and looked for another job. And he actually managed to find a pretty good job. Uh, He took a job in Houston, Texas, at a newspaper called the Houston Post. For the very first time, O'Henry was now making pretty sufficient money uh, doing exactly what he always had a talent to and what he wanted to do with his life, which was being a writer. Um, The Houston Post, we have to keep in mind also that American journalism back then was not what it is now. Uh, These days, a newspaper would never dare, I think, post a fictional story. I think the last time it ever happened in an American newspaper, it happened in the San Francisco Chronicle when Armistead Maupin was still writing his Tales of the City series uh, in daily 800-word chapter-like installments. And even, I think, after a certain point, he stopped publishing them that way and started uh, publishing them just as books, I think beginning with Michael Tolliver Libs. 
But in O. Henry's day, newspapers had pages to fill, and they needed stuff to fill them with. And very much like Mark Twain before him, O. Henry was a master uh, of filling newspapers. Uh, because newspapers back then, they, they weren't what we think of them today. They weren't just purveyors of journalism, usually pretty good journalism, uh, depending on the newspaper, of course. Um, if you're, say, the New York Times, the LA Times, the Chicago Sun, uh, the Chicago Tribune, uh, the Chicago Sun-Times, uh, I should say, or the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, my home paper, um, you usually tend to get pretty good journalism. Uh, but say, if you're talking about, like, the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph over in England, <laughs> and now that I've said that, they'll probably try to sue me, but I don't care. Um, oh, Henry was one of these uh, writer-editors who had to fill a lot of column inches. And not only would he fill it with actual news... But he would also fill it with gossip, and he would fill it with short stories. Uh, some of his earliest short stories apparently appeared in the pages of the Houston Post. Not under the name O. Henry. Again, that wouldn't happen until his short story, uh, Whistling Dick's Christmas Stocking, appeared in McClure's magazine several years later. But he was able to not only edit the paper, but he was able to fill it, and he was for the first time actually making money as a writer. Unfortunately, this wonderful period of kind of creative nirvana for him would eventually come crashing down. Remember what I said earlier about him getting fired for embezzlement? Well, initially, the bank really didn't press any charges against him. Um, they didn't pursue him criminally, because after all, embezzlement from a bank or any financial institution, or any institution for that matter, if you steal funds from the company, that's technically a crime. That is a crime for which you can be convicted and sent to prison. Uh, and at first, O. Henry didn't have to face any kind of backlash for this accusation for which he had been fired. But eventually, he did. What had happened is an auditor, a government auditor, actually came to the bank and audited the First National Bank's books and realized the discrepancy, the loss of the money. Where had it gone? What had happened to it? Where was it? Nobody could account for it. The only thing they knew, the auditor knew, is that the person who had handled the bookkeeping for the period of time during the audit, because you know, as a person who knows a thing or two about taxes, I know how audits work. They um, come in, a given auditor will come in, and they will review a given period of time in your tax life. So usually about two to, th you know, three years, and sometimes more if they find any funny business in the books. And this is what happened apparently to O'Henry. They discovered... Um, the embezzlement or the evidence of the embezzlement and they had to hold somebody responsible well the bank's not going to be held responsible so of course they turned O. Henry in uh, and initially O. Henry's uh, father-in-law uh, was able to keep him out of jail uh, Athol's uh, daddy was able to keep him out of jail they paid bail and made sure that he actually didn't go to prison initially but eventually crimes like that eventually have to go to court and between being bailed out of jail and um, the actual court date, O. Henry 
fled the country. He gave up his job at the Houston Post. He left behind his wife and daughter, mainly as a, not because they were an encumbrance or anything, but mainly because they simply didn't have enough money to all travel together. Otherwise, this would have happened. But eventually, he did flee the country, and he fleed the country, and he went to my home country, Honduras. And for six months, he stayed there, um, in exile, for you know just just half a year of his life. He stayed there, trying to avoid uh, having to face the raven, so to speak. And while he was there, he ended up writing some of his best stories. He ended up writing the entire contents of Cabbages and Kings, um, as I mentioned, I think, the first episode. But, you know, and he desperately wanted his family to come visit him, to come live with him. He, he just said, let's just leave the country, let's get out of there. But the thing of it is, is that Athol simply couldn't travel uh, because of her sickly condition. And so as a result... Uh, in time, he did indeed return, but we'll get into more detail in, uh, about that period in his life in the next episode. For the time being, let's focus in on uh, this week's story. So um, let's pause there and get moving. And and uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. This one, this story, is another really great one. It's one of his best, I think. So stay tuned. Stick with me. The last two stories that I've read on this podcast as a part of this miniseries I think has thoroughly proven that O'Henry had a great sympathy for roguish outsiders on the fringes of society. Um, And the second story I read to you uh, featured the character of the Cisco Kid, the famous cowboy who lives out in the West. The second story, or, or, or the story I read last time, was the story of Jimmy Valentine, the expert safecracker who turns his life around for the sake of love. Well, both of these characters um, are, are typical ideas of an O. Henry kind of character. He is a classical Henry hero is basically a fringe figure who stands on the margins of the of society in some way. And this today's story, this story that uh, I'm going to read to you shortly, is is no different, but in no different in the sense that it follows that same kind of not formula, but same kind of theme. Uh, of of O. Henry's. It's another roguish character. The story in question is The Cop and the Anthem. The Cop and the Anthem is probably one of O. Henry's most famous stories um, because of its its sheer (laughs) gleeful, uh, playful irony. The Cop and the Anthem tells the story of a hobo. Yes, a hobo, a homeless person um, named Soapy. Uh, I only chuckle mainly because O. Henry has, I mean, it's clear, the Cisco Kid, Soapy, um, Jimmy Valentine. He has a wonderful, almost Dickensian ear for names. It's so 
amusing, at least to me, uh, how he picks the names of his characters. But Soapy is is another figure in his panorama of, of roguish characters. Um, and the Cop and the Anthem is another example of O'Henry writing, I think, at his best. Um, O'Henry's plots, on their own level, and I'll get to this in a sec. I'll get to this later on in, in, in the episode. I'll probably close with this. Um, but O'Henry's plots are so fundamentally simple. You have a character who has something that they want, and like any good storyteller, all he does over and over again until the character least expects it, all O'Henry does is find very clever and sometimes kind of cruel ways or funny ways or amusing ways of making sure that this character doesn't get what they want. It's storytelling 101. And the cop in the anthem, the story of Soapy, this this roguish little hobo who all he wants, all he wants is to get arrested. <laughs> um, we, we have that famous uh, saying that a lot of people sometimes toss off, you know, after they've had some kind of social blunder and all of a sudden, you know, they say, I, I can't get arrested. I have a feeling that this story, The Cop and the Anthem, is the story that must have led to the coining of that phrase. Um, because that is Soapy's dilemma. No matter what he does throughout the course of this story, he cannot get arrested, at least until he least expects it. I think I'll say no more than that and just allow you to experience Soapy's dilemma alongside him. So this is The Cop and the Anthem. Again, one of O'Henry's, arguably one of his best stories, one of his uh, simplest stories, and one of his in a twisted way, one of his funniest stories. And it's from his famous collection, The Four Million, the second collection of stories that, um, that, that in which many of his best stories, I would say, appear. So here it is, The Cop and the Anthem, from The Four Million. Please enjoy. On his bench in Madison Square, Soapy moved uneasily. When wild geese honk high of nights, and when women without sealskin coats grow kind to their husbands, and when Soapy moves uneasily on his bench in the park, you may know that winter is near at hand. A dead leaf fell in Soapy's lap. That was Jack Frost's card. Jack is kind to the regular denizens of Madison Square and gives fair warning of his annual call. At the corners of four streets, he hands his pasteboard to the north wind, footmen of the mansion of all outdoors, so that the inhabitants thereof may make ready. Soapy's mind became cognizant of the fact that the time had come for him to resolve himself into a singular committee of ways and means to provide against the coming rigor, and therefore he moved uneasily on his bench. The hibernatorial ambitions of Soapy were not of the highest. In them were no considerations of Mediterranean cruises, of soporific southern skies, or drifting in the Vesuvian Bay. 
Three months on the island was what his soul craved. Three months of assured board and bed and congenial company, safe from bores and blue coats, seemed to Soapy the essence of things desirable. For years, the hospitable Blackwells had been his winter quarters. Just as his more fortunate fellow New Yorkers had bought their tickets to Palm Beach and the Riviera each winter, so Soapy had made his humble arrangements for his annual hegira to the island. And now the time was come. On the previous night, three Sabbath newspapers distributed beneath his coat, about his ankles, and over his lap, had failed to repulse the cold as he slept on his bench near the spurting fountain in the ancient square. So the island loomed big and timely in Soapy's mind. He scorned the provisions made in the name of charity for the city's dependents. In Soapy's opinion, the law was more benign than philanthropy. There was an endless round of institutions, municipal and eleemosynary, on which he might sit out and receive lodging and food accordant with the simple life. But to one of Soapy's proud spirit, the gifts of charity were encumbered. If not in coin, you must pay in humiliation of spirit for every benefit received at the hands of philanthropy. As Caesar had his Brutus, every bed of charity must have its toll of a batch, every loaf of bread its compensation of a private and personal inquisition. Wherefore, it is better to be a guest of the law, which, though conducted by rules, does not meddle unduly with a gentleman's private affairs. Soapy, having decided to go to the island, at once set about accomplishing his desire. There were many easy ways of doing this. The pleasantest was to dine luxuriously at some expensive restaurant, and then, after declaring insolvency, be handed over quietly and without uproar to a policeman. An accommodating magistrate would do the rest. Soapy left his bench and strolled out of the square and across the level sea of asphalt where Broadway and Fifth Avenue flow together. Up Broadway he turned and halted at a glittering cafe where are gathered together nightly the choicest products of the grape, the silkworm, and the protoplasm. Soapy had confidence in himself from the lowest button of his vest upward. He was shaven, and his coat was decent, and his neat black ready-tied forehand had been presented to him by a lady missionary on Thanksgiving Day. If he could reach a table in the restaurant unsuspected, success would be his. The portion of him that would show above the table would raise no doubt in the waiter's mind. A roasted mallard duck, thought Soapy, would be about the thing, with a bottle of Chablis and then camembert, a demi-tasse, and a cigar. One dollar for the cigar would be enough. The total would not be so high as to call forth any supreme manifestation of revenge from the cafe management, and yet the meat would leave him filled and happy for the journey to his winter refuge. 
But as Soapy set foot inside the restaurant door, the head waiter's eye fell upon his frayed trousers and decadent shoes. Strong and ready hands turned him about and conveyed him in silence and haste to the sidewalk and averted the ignoble fate of the menaced mallard. Soapy turned off Broadway. It seemed that his route to the coveted island was not to be an Epicurean one. Some other way of entering limbo must be thought of. In a corner of 6th Avenue, electric lights and cunningly displayed wares behind plate glass made a shop window conspicuous. Soapy took a cobblestone and dashed it through the glass. People came running around the corner, a policeman in the lead. Soapy stood still, with his hands in his pockets and a smile at the sight of brass buttons. "'Where's the man that done that?' inquired the officer excitedly. "'Don't you figure out that I might have had something to do with it?' said Soapy, without any sarcasm, but friendly as one greets good fortune. The policeman's mind refused to accept Soapy even as a clue. Men who smash windows do not remain in parley with the law's minions. They take to their heels. The policeman saw a man halfway down the block running to catch a car. With drawn club, he joined in the pursuit. Soapy, with disgust in his heart, loafed along, twice unsuccessful. On the opposite side of the street was a restaurant of no great pretensions. It catered to large appetites and modest purses. Its crockery and atmosphere were thick, its soup and napery thin. Into this place, Soapy took his accusive shoes and telltale trousers without challenge. At a table, he sat and consumed beefsteak, flapjacks, donuts, and pie. And then to the waiter, he betrayed the fact that the minutest coin and himself were strangers. Now get busy and call a cop, said Soapy, and don't keep a gentleman waiting. No cop for yous, said the waiter, with a voice like butter cakes and an eye like the cherry in a Manhattan cocktail. Hey, con! Neatly upon his left ear, on the callous pavement, two waiters pitched Soapy. He rose joint by joint as a carpenter's rule opens and beat the dust from his clothes. A rest seemed but a rosy dream. The island seemed very far away. A policeman who stood before a drugstore two doors away laughed and walked down the street. Five blocks Soapy traveled before his courage permitted him to woo capture again. This time the opportunity presented what he fatuously termed to himself a cinch. A young woman of a modest and pleasing guise was standing before a show window gazing with sprightly interest at its display of shaving mugs and ink stands. And two yards from the window was a large policeman of severe demeanor who leaned against a water plug. It was Soapy's design to assume the role of the despicable and excreated masher. The refined and elegant appearance of his victim and the 
contiguity of the conscientious cop encouraged him to believe that he would soon feel the pleasant official clutch upon his arm that would ensure his winter quarters on the right little, tight little aisle. Soapy straightened the lady missionary's ready-made tie, dragged his shrinking cuffs into the open, set his hat at a killing Kate, and saddled toward the young woman. He made eyes at her, was taken with sudden coughs and hems, smiled, smirked, and went brazenly through the impudent and contemptible litany of the masher. With half an eye, Soapy saw that the policeman was watching him fixedly. The young woman moved away a few steps and again bestowed her absorbed attention upon the shaving mugs. Soapy followed, boldly stepping to her side, raised his hat, and said, Hi there, Belinda. Don't you want to come and play in my yard? The policeman was still looking. The persecuted young woman had but to beckon a finger, and Soapy would be practically en route for his insular haven. Already he imagined he could feel the cozy warmth of the station house. The young woman faced him, and, stretching out a hand, caught Soapy's coat sleeve. Sure, Mike, she said joyfully. If you'll blow me to a pail of suds, I'd have spoke to you sooner, but the cop was watching. With the young woman playing the clinging ivy to his oak, Soapy walked past the policeman, overcome with gloom. He seemed doomed to liberty. At the corner, he shook off his companion and ran. He halted in the district where, by night, are found the lightest streets, hearts, vows, and librettos. Women in furs and men in greatcoats moving gaily into wintry air. A sudden fear seized Soapy that some dreadful enchantment had rendered him immune to arrest. The thought brought a little of panic upon it, and when he came upon another policeman lounging grandly in front of a transplendent theater, he caught at the immediate straw of disorderly conduct. On the sidewalk, Soapy began to yell drunken gibberish at the top of his harsh voice. He danced, howled, raved, and otherwise disturbed the welkin. The policeman twirled his club, turned his back to Soapy, and remarked to a citizen, "'Tis one of them Yale lads celebrating the goose egg they gave to the Hartford College. Noisy, but no harm. We have instructions to lave him be." Disconsolate, Soapy ceased his unavailing racket. Would never a policeman lay hands on him? In his fancy, the island seemed an unattainable Arcadia. He buttoned his thin coat against the chilling wind. In a cigar store, he saw a well-dressed man lighting a cigar at a swinging light. His silk umbrella he had set by the door on entering. Soapy stepped inside, secured the umbrella, and sauntered off with it slowly. The man at the cigar light followed hastily. My umbrella, he said sternly. Oh, is it? sneered Soapy, adding insult to petite larceny. Well, why don't you call a policeman? I took it, your umbrella. Why don't you call a cop? There stands one on the corner. The umbrella owner slowed his steps. Soapy did likewise, with a presentiment that luck would again run against him. 
The policeman looked at the two curiously. Of course, said the umbrella man. That is, well, you know how these mistakes occur. I, if it's your umbrella, I hope you'll excuse me. I picked it up this morning in a restaurant. If you recognize it as yours, why, I hope you'll... Of course it's mine, said Soapy viciously. The ex-umbrella man retreated. The policeman hurried to assist a tall blonde in an opera cloak cross the street in front of a streetcar that was approaching two blocks away. Soapy walked eastward through a street damaged by improvements. He hurled the umbrella wrathfully into an excavation. He muttered against the men who wear helmets and carry clubs. Because he wanted to fall into their clutches, they seemed to regard him as a king who could do no wrong. At length, Soapy reached one of the avenues to the east where the glitter and turmoil was but faint. He set his face down this toward Madison Square, for the homing instinct survives even when the home is a park bench. But, on an unusually quiet corner, Soapy came to a standstill. Here was an old church, quaint and rambling and gabled. Through one violet-stained window a soft light glowed, where, no doubt, the organist loitered over the keys making sure of his mastery of the coming Sabbath anthem. For there drifted out to Soapy's ears sweet music that caught and held him transfixed against the convolutions of the iron fence. The moon was above, lustrous and serene. Vehicles and pedestrians were few. Sparrows twittered sleepily in the eaves. For a little while, the scene might have been a country churchyard, and the anthem that the organist played cemented Soapy to the iron fence, for he had known it well in the days when his life contained such things as mothers and roses and ambitions and friends and immaculate thoughts and collars. The conjunction of Soapy's receptive state of mind and the influences about the church wrought a sudden and wonderful change in his soul. He viewed with swift horror the pit into which he had tumbled, the degraded days, unworthy desires, dead hopes, wrecked faculties, and base motives that made up his existence. And also, in a moment, his heart responded thrillingly to this mood. An instantaneous and strong impulse moved him to battle with his desperate fate. He would pull himself out of the mire. He would make a man of himself again. He would conquer the evil that had taken possession of him. There was time. He was comparatively young yet. He would resurrect his old eager ambitions and pursue them without faltering. Those solemn but sweet organ notes had set up a revolution in him. Tomorrow he would go into the roaring downtown district and find work. A fur importer had once offered him a place as a driver. He would find him tomorrow and ask for the position. He would be somebody in the world. He would. Soapy felt a hand laid on his arm. He looked quickly around to the broad face of a policeman. "'What are you doing here?' asked the officer. "'Nothing,' said Soapy. "'Then come along,' said the policeman. 
three months on the island, said the magistrate in the police court the next morning. earlier in my intro to this story uh, that this story, The Cop and the Anthem, is a perfect example of O. Henry writing at his best and his simplest. Um, that being said, uh, and I, I will continue on that line of thought briefly, but there, I do have to say that there are some hiccups in O. Henry's writing style that do sometimes irritate me. Um, as a modern reader, uh, and, and two things immediately stand out. One is his tendency to occasionally use passive voice. Now, I was raised uh, on a lot of the rules of George Orwell. I mean, nothing irritates me more than reading a sentence in passive voice. Um, admittedly, it took me a very long time to learn to recognize what passive voice was. Um, it's basically any time um, you, you see a, a combination of words um, where you have basically two past tense verbs stuck together and, and where the object of the verb is treated as the subject of the verb when in fact it's not. Um, the classic example is the ball was thrown by me at the wall. Uh, you know, the ball was thrown. That combination of verbs, was thrown, was, you have to remember, is, is a verb. Sometimes it's hard to remember that because it's, you know, it's a version of to be, but was thrown. It is so clunky and so slow uh, that it, that it, it kind of grates against me every time I read something of that. And O'Henry is guilty of this, but mainly, but it, that was the style of writing and people really didn't give a damn. Uh, about these things as much as we do now. Um, maybe you can blame academia for imposing this. Maybe you can blame George Orwell, you know, who wrote uh, in his essay, Why I Write, that uh, one should never use the passive voice when you can use the active, um, which makes sense. I mean, the active voice just kind of gives a momentum to any piece of writing that makes it makes the reading experience absolutely smooth um, like sliding a rock over a frozen lake surface it's it's absolutely smooth um, but O'Henry I don't think was nearly as persnickety about style as uh, we are today um, and so it, it, he, he's occasionally guilty of that the other thing that does occasionally irritate me is his tendency just at random to lapse from the past tense into the present tense. Um, you know, you'll read a whole paragraph of his that's perfectly written in the past tense, and then all of a sudden a random sentence will be written in the present tense. Now, admittedly, the act of doing this sort of endears him to the reader, or at least it did, I think, in his day, where um, 
it really felt as if someone was telling you a story. This goes back to that third-person omniscient narrator that O. Henry was uh, regularly employed, including in this story um, about Soapy, even though we stick very, very close to Soapy's actions throughout uh, The Cop and the Anthem. Uh, but every once in a while, there'll, there'll just be the sudden insertion or this sudden interruption where the narrator will sort of uh, come out of nowhere and speak directly to you, the reader, to us, the readers. And it's a little bit discombobulated. Again, this must be a hangover from my own education and writing where uh, you want to try and keep those things consistent. But, you know, it was a different time. People wrote differently than they do now, and O'Henry is... He's, he's a pre-modern writer. Um, he's a pre-Hemingway writer. Uh, so his way of writing his stories is going to be very, very different than the way we're used to reading now. And these are just hiccups that we kind of have to cope with if we want to enjoy what he wrote. Um, and I do. And I, I find that, for the most part, it's not it's not too unpleasant. It's just, um, just occasionally grating. Now, going back to what I was saying earlier about this being O. Henry at his storyteller best. I have a theory that storytelling at its fundamental core is basically rooted in character and rooted in the wants of the character. In other words, what the character wants should permeate the entire story to the point where it drives the narrative. In other words, the characters once create the plot. And what is plot? Plot is basically what happens in a story. That's what plot is. Plot is what happens. But story is why. So why is this happening? Why this is happening is because the character wants something in particular and is doing everything within their power to get it. Um, and, you know, everything that's put in their path to keep them from getting what they want, that's conflict. And conflict, of course, is the essence of story. Um, and, and this story is O. Henry at his best. It, I mean, if you want a masterclass in what a story looks like, it is this story. It is the cop and the anthem. Because Soapy's motivation for what he wants permeates the whole story. Everything that happens is him trying to get what he wants. It's the classic try-fail cycle of, those, uh, of that literary theory. Um, what do they call it? Um, the hero's journey. This is what he wants. So try, fail. He tries to get arrested by going into a fancy restaurant, and he can't even get into the restaurant, so they, they throw him out before he can even commit the crime. He tries getting arrested by throwing a brick, uh, a cobblestone through a window, and he fails because the cop doesn't believe that he's the one who did it because he's just standing there like a schmuck. Um, he tries to get arrested again by, by hitting on some woman in a very lewd and lavish way, and it doesn't work. He tries getting arrested by acting like a drunk, and it doesn't work. <laughs> he tries getting arrested by um, going into another slightly more, uh, I think what the Brits used to call down market, you know, slightly less classy restaurant, eating all this food and uh, refusing to pay because he's got no money and he's trying to get the owners to call the cops on him and they won't. Instead, they just give him the uh, what used to be called the bum's rush and throw him out on his ear, literally. Um, <laughs> just all he wants is to get arrested and they won't. 
<laughs> it won't happen. <laughs> Until it does. Um, and and that's that story. I have a feeling that more MFA writers, more MFA students could save all that money and all that time just by reading the cop and the anthem. This is storytelling at its most bare bones. Um, this is storytelling in its core, to its core. Story is character wants something, the world or somebody else prevents him from getting it or prevents them from getting it, excuse me. Um, and, you know, they keep trying, they keep trying, they keep trying until they either get it or they fail to get it. Um, and, and that's the way it works. That's what the, that's what's so wonderful about this story. And that's what's so wonderful about all of O. Henry's stories. They are literally masterclasses in how you can write a short story and how you can get to the essence of a story in such a brief amount of time. Um, and we come to understand these characters, you know, their very basic, simple motivations and how they're just moving along through life and how they just want to try and get what they want and how the world just kind of won't let them until oh henry decides to let them get it um that's what's so wonderful about this and, and what's what's so wonderful about this guy as a writer um he's amusing he's funny and he understands story to its core that's what he is a master storyteller Hey, funny people. That's it from me here on Four Cents a Podcast. I really do hope you enjoyed the show and that you'll join me here again next time. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and do try to remember to enjoy yourselves. Thank you.